Sam. Yeah, Don? What's the word? Pink cloud. I was on a pink cloud when I first got here. Then I met my sponsor. Where'd you hear that? I, I heard, heard it through, through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour and Variety Hour, featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. How you doing, Sam? Your voice sounds very rich and luxurious today. I'm going through second puberty. It's it, it's <laughs> oh. my voice is changing again. Yes, that's what it is. So if I oh. squeak or, or squawk at any point, you'll know what's going on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going through second breakfast. <laughs> okay. The elevenses? <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. Sam, Dr. William D. Silkworth was director of the Towns Hospital in New York City in the 1930s, during which time Bill W., have you heard of him? Once or twice. <laughs> he was admitted on three occasions. Silkworth had a profound influence and encouraged him to realize that alcoholism was more than just an issue of moral weakness. He gave Bill the idea that alcoholism is a disease. He also wrote the doctor's opinion in our big book. Now, I like the grapevine daily quote that came up in my email recently. It's Bill W. writing in 1957. He says, Dr. Silkworth taught us how to till the black soil of hopelessness, out of which every single spiritual awakening in our fellowship has since flowered. In December 1934, this man of science had sat humbly by my bed, following my own sudden and overwhelming spiritual experience, reassuring me, no, Bill, he had said, you're not hallucinating. Whatever you've got, you better hang on to it. It's so much better than what you had only an hour ago. Wow, only an hour ago. That's <laughs> Bill from the book, The Language of the Heart. So, you know, he had an overwhelming spiritual experience. And then he goes, I don't trust this. And Dr. Silkworth says, I don't know either, but you're better than you were an hour <laughs> yeah, it's ago. better than what you've had. <laughs> <laughs> Which is my story. Everyone doesn't get a spiritual experience. I didn't have a white light experience, but I wanted to drink. So I was going to drink or I was just getting, you know, I felt like I was just going to explode. I decided to say a prayer, which I had heard people talk about in meetings. I didn't believe it would work, but I did it because of that hopelessness. It, it, uh, spirit, I had a spiritual spell. It came over me, and I made it through that spell to a meeting. And I didn't have to drink. Well, like three days later, I'm going, ah, it wasn't really anything. I think I was imagining that. And I had a friend, the minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church. Mm -hmm. So I made an appointment with her and I described this thing that happened to me. And I said, I think I was kind of imagining it, but I, you know, I don't know. I was looking for some kind of confirmation. And she said to me, what's the matter with you? I know lots and lots of people who would love to have something like that happen to them. And here you are throwing it away. That... That kind of gave me, well, okay, I guess I guess that makes sense to me. And it was kind of the same thing. It's like, you're better off 
I was better off from that time on. And I've been better off using the tools of the program. And so now, you know, I don't question it like I used to. But even so, if I get something that's uh, uncanny, I might say it's a spiritual experience. I will allow that it's (laughs) a spiritual. Your favorite word, allow. I will allow that it's a spiritual experience. But then a week later, I'll go, nah, it was a coincidence. (laughs) So what you're saying is you need ongoing spiritual experiences. Yeah, that's what I want is an ever-burning spiritual experience that never goes away. I don't know. But did you, in your early days in AA, did you find that things were working? And, you know, this thing, what is this AA thing? Is this too good to be true? You know, I was about six months sober. It was the end of the year in 2003, and I was flying with my grandmother to visit family in New Mexico and bring in the new year with them. Changing planes in Detroit, my grandmother and I were in line to board, and about, I don't know, 10 or 15 feet in front of me on the carpet was this shiny silver disc. And I was like, well, that's going to be gone before we even get there. Someone's going to pick it up. Nobody picked it up. And I picked it up when I got to it. Mm -hmm. And it was an aluminum AA 24-hour token. It was first time traveling sober. And I've got chills right now. And I had done my homework and found where meetings were in this tiny little town. I knew where I was going to go, and I had made arrangements to get to the meetings. I had done the work prior to to make sure that I was going to be okay on this trip. And that token there just for me was just like, yep. You're going to be fine. Confirmation. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Sam, what's on the show today? Well, today we'll be visiting with Lauren A. And following that, we will return to our recurring segment, Blast from the Past. We have a recording of Nurse Teddy R. speaking in 1956. She got sober in 1947. The sound quality on this is not ideal, but I've done a lot of work on it, so I hope you're going to find it worthwhile to stick with it for five minutes. She doesn't mention him, but she worked with Dr. Silkworth for a time. She ultimately settled at the Knickerbocker Hospital in New York. It's the early form of a treatment center, you could say. Back when you were prescribed tomato juice and (laughs) B12 shots from a giant syringe. (laughs) In this recording, you get to hear the flavor of AA in its first decade or so. All right. Do you have your tomato juice handy? Yeah, I got tomato juice and sauerkraut. Oh, but that looks like (laughs) bean juice. I have to tell the truth. I'm having a little bit of coffee. (laughs) And now a word from our sponsor. We don't have sponsors? What are you thinking? Oh, yeah, we don't do the commercial sponsor thing. Since the grapevine is self-supporting, we don't sell ad space in our magazine, on our website, or in our podcast. Grapevine doesn't even accept donations from AA members. If you want to support Grapevine and this podcast, visit aagrapevine.org slash store. alcoholic. I'm from Southern California, Area 5, and my sobriety date is April 1st, 1990. Hey, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. 
Lauren, did you ever have one of those experiences we were talking about earlier where this AA thing is working and it's too good to be true and you better hold on to it because you got something going on? Yeah, well, I was listening to you guys and, you know, I, I first of all had like such an intense moment of clarity the day I finally got sober. I was sitting on the couch. It was just like some kind of something washed over me. And there was like a new world in front of me. And I said, let's go to that meeting to my then partner, you know, and he was like, okay, but it was very intense. But then after that, everything was new and better, no matter how painful walking through life was without drinking, everything just seemed to be a, a spiritual experience. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> every single thing, like uh, getting up in the morning and not having a hangover. Mm. I went to work every day. I ended up having to quit that job very quickly because it was a very drunk place. Mm. So everything I did, every meeting I went to, there was something new that I went. Oh, I just wanted to, like, slap myself on the forehead and go, duh. Oh, gosh, you just took me back to I remember I carried a notebook in those meetings for the first year because I was hearing all these gems of like, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to hear this again. This is I've got to write this down. Things like it. Time takes time and don't leave before the miracle happens. You know, those things that we've heard over and over and over since. Exactly. I used to go to this big meeting uh, in Hollywood, California on Sunday mornings, and they always had these magnificent speakers. And I was I was not a vision for you. And I was just such a mess. And I remember just sitting in the middle of that room and being aghast at how shiny and happy everyone was, yeah. how lean they were and how these some of these speakers had been through more hell than I could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just being like, what is going I couldn't figure out what was going on. I guess those were all spiritual experiences. You know, every single time somebody said something that, you know, told part of my story, yeah. no matter who they were, that blew me away. It was like, oh, there are people that felt like I did when I was drinking. You know, that isolation that we have as drunks is the worst part because we get so pitiful and think no one could ever feel as bad as you do. And you're all alone. And then that just disappears when you walk into the rooms. It's amazing the openness with which we share the disaster of our lives and the fantastic recovery, but the disaster of our lives. Remember when I was new, (laughs) you know, I was just full of the glorious AA and like sharing something with someone like a friend that probably could have been in the rooms and them just like their eyes rolling back in their head like, what did you do? And I was like, oh, yeah, they told me maybe I shouldn't share this. Well, you, it sounds like you're talking about with that being on fire with AA and everything's a new experience. And it's like suddenly having an understanding of the way the world works in a totally different way. So is that a pink cloud? That I've never quite understood pink cloud people talk about in the meetings. Well, I think you start to feel better physically, but like I couldn't read the big book because it was all just jumping around in front of me. Mm. 
later in sobriety, up until my seventh year, things changed so much. And in my seventh year, I had drastic change in my deciding to change my career. And I finally heard the people in my home group as I complained and complained and complained. Oh, well, you're just supposed to be there to be of service and get a paycheck. And one day I went in and I was finally of service to people and not telling them that I fixed that and picked up some trash next to a trash can that somebody had missed. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, because it was all about me still. Yeah. And that that's part of the pink cloud you talked about. And then all of a sudden everything gets real. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. The next couple of years. And then after that, it's like, well, you better get on the ball here. You know, it sounds almost like the progression is pink cloud. Then things get real. Yeah. And then we learn to wear life like a loose garment. Yeah. So what's your experience working the steps, Lauren? Did you get into it immediately? Yeah. I keep talking about this meeting I used to go to. One morning I was there early because my boyfriend at the time, we got commitments, you know, set up and coffee so that we knew we wouldn't drink that morning. And there was a, a woman there and she said hi to me. And I was like, ooh, someone's speaking to me. And we are still best friends. Like. <laughs> She invited me to go to coffee afterwards and everything. I mean, it was kind of a hip slick and cool meeting. So, you know, and everybody knew each other and stuff. And it took a while for anybody to know me. She had six months, which I was like, what? <laughs> and I, I started following her and her friends around going places like going to shoot pool and getting a pitcher of Coke, you know, <laughs> how, how to live without right. drinking. Right. And so yeah. I thought, oh, I better start working these steps. And I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. And this is the most hilarious thing. I wrote my four step because they were all doing their four steps. And my sponsor hadn't told me it's time to write your four step. We hadn't even oh. talked about it. Right. So I wrote my four step and I called her and she said, oh, I didn't know you were doing that. Well, she said, I'll come over. So I read her what I thought was my four step. And she said, is that it? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, there's a whole column that you missed. And I went, what? what? <laughs> said, your part in all of these things? <laughs> yeah, right. I hadn't read the book completely. I didn't know. And uh, it was all about me and how much I hated everybody, you know, <laughs> the military industrial complex, you know, all of all of those things and what had been done to me. And it was the most revolutionary and revealing thing. She sat there with me and went over every single one of those things. And we found my part in it. That was incredible. But doing the fifth step like that. And I've done a couple more since then. But that experience taught me not just like what my part was, but like to read and pay attention, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to like figure it out and not try to just be in competition with other people or just try to be what my friends are doing. Like that was a revelation to discover that, oh, yeah, to get healthy, you have to know your part in all of these. Well, we need help. I think everybody needs help to be able to see it at first. What is my part? Yeah. It was like, I was told, well, you were in that relationship too. Yes. I was mm. like, oh, right. You know, there was a really important distinction I got with my first sponsor. Some of these things, my part in it was that I was there. Right. Mm -hmm. But there was another layer to my part in it. Mm-hmm. And it was, I'm still holding on to that today. And that was something that I needed to look at. Yeah. yeah, there was a huge relationship in marriage that I had a lot of stuff around. 
I mean, it completely changed my outlook on life, but also my opinion of that person, seeing that person in a completely different light instead of someone who did me wrong, you know. Oh, gosh. Lauren, can you describe a transformation of some sort? Well, this person I was speaking of actually called me, I don't know, I was maybe six years sober. Yeah, around that time. And he kept calling and my roommate said, you know, so-and-so called. I'm like, right. And he said, he called again today. Finally, this is before we had caller ID or anything. I picked up my princess phone (laughs) and answered it. And it was this person. And I had talked to my sponsor about it. And she said, well, here's a chance for you to get your amends in. And if they call, just answer the phone. And I was, okay. And so there were these long, painful silences. And I was like, this is my time. And I start, you know, I I gave my amends in between him saying, no, 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 don't say that. No, no, you know, (laughs) and then long, painful silences. He he said it was the biggest mistake I ever made when we split up and stuff. And I was like, this must be really hard. I, I can understand how hard it is. And and I appreciate you calling and just saying that. And it it was it just took my breath away because I had the chance to make amends. He had the chance to try, but <laughs> you he know, but I, I knew that's why he was calling, but he couldn't get it out. And oh, yeah. um yeah, so that's when I had that experience of just changing the whole perception of this person, my whole idea of that marriage, the whole all of it changed and i had much more sympathy or empathy about him and you know it was just quite the experience to go through that and i felt afterwards that my life was completely different after that because that was the big thing that was the big relationship Mm -hmm. that's why i drank you know you don't understand i've been wronged and blah 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 you know all that junk um yeah and also with my father also Mm. As I grew older, I understood him more. He was a soldier, and I completely understand why he drank when I found out more about him later. I mean, besides having alcoholism, and uh, I was able to be with him when he he was dying and um, get make amends. With, well, I had made amends before, but to tell him he was a good dad and all that stuff, and that changed my life also. Same with my mom when my mom passed, but we were very, very close, my mother and I. We were best friends. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Yeah. And I thought that was just like crazy. It's like, of course I regret the past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a 3 a.m. voice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thanks for sharing what a piece of crap I am. Yeah. But we can change our relationship to the past so that we're not doing that to ourselves. I love that this is not a guarantee, but it is a very common thing in AA that relationships get healed. Yeah. Lauren, what is your recovery like today? What do you do to stay sober today? And how are you engaged in AA? What part does it play? Well, I most of my meetings have gone online my manpanion and I are looking for meetings in our neighborhood again <laughs> to see what's open. I just rotated out of being the delegate for Area 5. No. Can you describe what the delegate does for someone who doesn't know what a delegate is? <laughs> Do you have an hour? Yeah, it, it, give, yeah give us a 30-second <laughs> description. <laughs> 
Well, I was elected by the members of the Assembly of Southern California, Area 5, to be the voice of their group consciences at the annual conference of general service. So I was in conference 71 and 72. 71 was on Zoom and 72, I went to New York. I was assigned to the public information committee, became chair of that, did the work with the other delegates. There's 93 delegates in U.S. and Canada. There were some from the East, some from Canada, some from the far West. It was an absolutely amazing thing. And then we report back to the conference. And if there is something that we want to have them vote on, let's say the literature committee, they want a new pamphlet. Someone had asked for a new pamphlet and it went on the agenda and the literature committee said, yes, let's do that. And then the conference says, yes, we want that pamphlet. So you vote on the various items from each committee and come back and make a report. And that's sort of in a nutshell. There's so much more that goes into it. No, but that's that's it. It's how things get done in AA. Yeah. I mean, it's really a protection of the traditions. What I was told was hold the conference members' feet to the fire and make sure, you know, just pay attention. There's a lot of reading and you have to pay attention. And if something doesn't sit right, you go to the mic and you say, my area doesn't feel like that. What the conference does is tells the general service board what to do. Mm-hmm. Good. Let's go back to how you're staying sober today and how it's all tied in together. Well, I haven't had a drink in a long time. It doesn't seem like a problem for me. However, occasionally it pops in my head, mm-hmm. you know, and luckily I have the tools to do one, two and three right there. I'm powerless. What am I thinking? You know, I wonder how that wine tastes. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What What do you mean? You know, that's just so weird. You know, or a hot summer day to see a billboard. With a, with a golden bottle of beer being poured, you know, and go, oh, that looks good. What? You know, <laughs> it won't be good for so, me. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how I how how I I look at things now. I do go to meetings. Being in the area in general service for such a long time, that has totally changed my life as far as sobriety goes. You know, you could never be treasurer for the area and go out and drink. You say you never could, but I mean, that stuff all kept me sober and took my sobriety like to another level. Like I am responsible. Mm. I was looking for something when I first got into general service in like 2004, because, you know, we've all done this. We've made the coffee. We've set up the tables. We've set up the chairs. We've cleaned the ashtrays. We've swept the floors. And I was feeling like my home group was just, yeah, I don't know. I felt uh, dissatisfied. The same people saying the same things Mm. over and over. And so I started judging them. And then one day I got talked into going to this assembly and I walked in and I was like, what is this? I was (laughs) so inspired because we don't think about anything but what goes on in our groups. Mm-hmm. We don't understand that there's a mechanism, that there are people that are trusted servants, including trustees that are not alcoholics, who devote their time to us to help make sure that it stays, that the movement continues and that it's safe in the traditions. I was like blown away. So that's basically what I do. And I keep getting asked to do stuff. So <laughs> I stay sober. What have you experienced outside of general service? that has been impacted by your experience of general service? Okay, I must, I own my own business. I had no idea how to do the books. 
And I got elected as the contributions treasurer for the area. So I had to learn how to use the computer to enter things into Quicken. And then I got elected the next panel as accounts treasurer. So now I'm responsible for all the money and I'm learning how to do all of this stuff and print out reports and use Excel. This is a perfect example of how general service helped me because I use all of this in my business. I'm not good with money. And now I can at least see how I'm not good with money. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how general service has affected me personally. That and, you know, showing up, not saying I'm not going to go to the meeting today. I got a headache, Mm. you know, or whatever it is. It's I think the responsibility of all those things really inspired me. And then I was secretary. I learned how to like make notes and not write everything that every single person said, every word that they said Mm -hmm. in my report. I mean, I think that just changes you as a person, you know. All right, Lauren, is there anything that you did not get to talk about that you'd like to? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Pacific Region AA Service Assembly. For those of you on the Pacific Region, March 3rd through 5th, we're hosting it this year in Los Angeles. If you go to prasa.org, I just want to give a shout out that it's an amazing weekend. If you'd like to go, check out the website and my information is there, program at prasa.org if you have questions about it. And that's P-R-A-A-S-A? Yes. Lauren, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I I really enjoy you guys. And thank you so much for inviting me today. This podcast has just been amazing. It's just exploded all over the world. And and I want to thank you for your hard work and dedication. Oh, thank you. And everybody at the Grapevine, too. Thank you. Blast! From the past. And now we have a five-minute clip of Nurse Teddy R. from New York, New York, speaking in 1956. My name is Teddy, and I am an alcoholic. Finding out I was an alcoholic was one of the grandest things that ever happened to me. I am glad to know, after all the years, that I tried to find out what was wrong with me, what the answer was. I drank, like most people, and during Prohibition, I drank socially for many years, and I didn't have any problem at all with drinking. But slowly, I began to drink just a little more, just a little faster, and began to feel just a little more miserable in the morning. Well, it went on, I think, for about four years prior to my coming in AA, my drinking really got bad. Then it started the arguments that started home. You're drinking too much. Why don't you just have two and stop? Why don't you drink like a lady? This went on. I knew that my husband was right. I knew that my friends were talking. I would start at five o'clock, mixing scotch, and by the time my husband would get in, I would be loaded. And they'd say, how many drinks did you have? Two beers. I never had more than two. I'd be blind. But all of a sudden, my drinking picked up again, and I had heard of an AA meeting opening in Reno. But I was too proud to go. I wanted to go, and I was ashamed to go. I went to my first meeting in Jackson Heights, and I often, since I've been in AA and have taken care of patients, 
I've heard people talk about good meetings and bad meetings. My first meeting, I shall never forget it. I went to this group, and there was a man with a bright red necktie. Well, they weren't wearing bright neck, red neckties in 1947. Then I had a girl. girl got up, and she was rather young, and every doctor she ever came near chased her all over the place. She was having trouble that way, and I had had enough psychiatry, enough training, and I could more or less tag her. So then, uh, <laughs> you heard it. <laughs> the uh, last chap, Frank, God love him, he had sold his shoes on the Bowery. Uh, these them and those. This humility, that was for the birds. All of this stuff. And while he's talking, I hear this disturbance in the back and this applause and this woman is saying, I agree with that. And she staggers up the aisle dead drunk. I thought it was framed. It was part of the act. <laughs> then they get up and they say the Lord's Prayer. I said, oh, mother of God, what am I into now? But that meeting, believe me, gave me the key, the clue to my life. I got the word allergy. When I heard that word, it rung a bell because I had had a course in allergies. And I went home and I started to think. And I thought to myself, well, now, if you had asthma, you could be sensitive to house dust. And you can't control house dust. Hay fever. That's the wind in the pollen. You can't control it. Then I got down to urticaria, or hive, and I thought, well, if I got darn good and sick eating strawberries, would I eat them? And I said, no. Well, I said, well, here's alcohol. It's giving you mental hives. Fears, indecision, loss of your self-respect, loneliness, terror. These, to me, were mental hives. That was the first sensible thinking I had done since I was born. Shortly afterwards at a meeting, I heard about Knickerbocker. And by this time, I wanted to do something because I remembered how lost I was. And the thing I had found, thank God, I wanted to share. I saw myself in each and every patient. I can't tell you just how grateful and how happy I have been these past almost 10 years. I found out that happiness comes from within by helping those without. Another thing that I learned in AA, and that was laugh. Well, I had one of these men in there. His name was Anthony. So I got to calling him St. Anthony. That was fine. A day or so later, I had another Duncan in and Jim was one of the rolling kind. I'd get him into bed and he'd roll on this side, and then I'd get him there and he'd roll here, and the phones were ringing, and I couldn't leave him for fear he'd crack his skull. So I yelled down a hall to this woman who was working with me, and I said, Ella, get me St. Anthony. And with that, Cregan sat straight up in bed, and he says, Oh, Mother of God, don't tell me he's here too. <laughs> How many drunks does it take to change a light bulb? One.
but the drunk has to really want to change. (laughs) (laughs) It's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.